Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. If there is evidence of that, you might think that the remedy would be stop discriminating against Asian Americans, right? That would be an appropriate remedy. But what the plaintiffs do is they jump to abolish affirmative action altogether. So this case is being quite transparently used to advance a policy goal that is not about Asian Americans. This is Professor Frank Wu. He's professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco after having served as chancellor and dean at that university. He's the author of Yellow, Race in America Beyond Black and White, and the co-author of Race, Rights, and Reparation, Law and the Japanese-American Internment. He blogs frequently, writes opinion pieces and editorials informed by his practice and his teaching as a professor of law, and he discusses what the affirmative action filed against Harvard University really means for our country's effort to achieve equality in higher education and in society at large. Chinese Exclusion Act, an act to execute certain treaty stipulations relating to Chinese. Whereas in the opinion of the government of the United States, the coming of Chinese laborers to this country endangers the good order of certain localities within the territory thereof. Therefore, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled, that from and after the expiration of 90 days next after the passage of this act, and until the expiration of 10 years next after the passage of this act, the coming of Chinese laborers to the United States be, at the same time as hereby, suspended. 
and during such suspension it shall not be lawful for any Chinese laborer to come or having so come after the expiration of said 90 days to remain within the United States. Welcome. I'm here with Frank Wu, who is a professor at UC Hastings School, College of Law in San Francisco in California. But we're sitting here today. Thank you, Frank, for joining me on the podcast, first of all. Great to be here. We're sitting here on a very foggy, drizzling, rainy day in, in New York City. People in California would be happy if it were raining today, clearly. It's a difficult time in California, given the wildfires. But I want to thank you, first of all, for coming on the podcast. I'm quite interested in a couple of things you've written about. You've written quite a lot. I've read parts of your book called Yellow Race in America Beyond Black and White. And if I can start it out with a quote from that book, because I wanted to talk to you about affirmative action, but you make a comment there about affirmative action, where you say the following, the debate over affirmative action threatens to overwhelm the civil rights movement without advancing us meaningfully toward racial justice. So that's from your book, which you wrote probably some 12 or 15 years ago, so you may not remember it as well as I do since <laughs> I read it this morning. But I thought affirmative action, there's a lawsuit against Harvard University right now that centers on affirmative action, that centers on Asian Americans at the university. And I wanted to unpack that a bit given the range of interests you have in racial justice and affirmative action and the role of Asian Americans in higher education. So, you know, I get asked to debate affirmative action. I've done it TV shows, radio programs, podcasts, and so on. When I'm asked to do that now, I usually say no. Here's why I say no. First of all, a debate is a spectacle. It's an entertainment. A debate, you go to a debate, you cheer for your side, right? Debates are won by sound bites, better haircuts, who packs the auditorium. It's angry. If one debater said to another debater, you have a point. Let's sit down and talk about this. The audience would boo and hiss because a debate is meant to ratchet tension up. We should have dialogue, discussion in a collegial, thoughtful way. And starting with affirmative action is a terrible mistake. The first thing we teach in law school is how to frame the issue, how to ask a question. Because if you're an advocate of any skill, you realize whoever has framed the issue has already determine what the outcome will be to any debate. That's what advocates do. They actually argue what is the question to be asked before they try to give the answer because it's so significant. So I'm going to do what kids call flip the script. Mm -hmm. And I'll be clear up front. I've testified in favor of affirmative action. I was an expert witness on behalf of students in the University of Michigan case when I went to trial. So, so this so case I, in Michigan is Greta versus Bollinger. That's the case in Michigan when, can you just yes. give me a, so, uh, one sentence synopsis of that complicated case? It, it was the landmark case. It will be superseded by later cases. It was decided about 20 years ago. Justice O'Connor wrote the opinion recognizing diversity as a compelling state interest. There are two cases, Grutter and Gratz, one about undergraduates, one about the law school. And the students asked me to be part of that. I share that because I'll be up front. I think diversity in higher education is good. I think it's important. I think it's crucial. But nobody is really a supporter of affirmative action. 
Let me explain what I mean by that as a supporter of affirmative action. It's a name, a label, given to a hodgepodge of programs, some mandated, some voluntary, public, private, etc. But it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Let me try to start the conversation someplace different. So if you ask people, there's a fragile consensus achieved recently and always being tested. But there's a fragile consensus among people of every political party, every race, every part of the country, every background, that if you have a college campus, let's say if you have NYU, and in the entering class there are zero black people, that's not right. Now, people might not have a big theory to explain why it's not right, but most of us would look at that and say, this troubles us. Uh, and it, it should. It's even more troubling if it's a public institution that's supported by taxpayers. And it, it doesn't have to be no African-American students. If there are zero Hispanic students, if there are zero Filipino students, right? if, if in a class of a thousand or even a hundred, if there is such a conspicuous absence we would say, we should do something about this, right? It, it, it's embarrassing if you look at a photograph t today. It's embarrassing. You look at a photograph of here are the winners of a scholarship. Here are the leaders of our company. Here's our staff. So sometimes companies celebrate their employees. That's great. Sometimes a restaurant will run an ad. There was a steakhouse that did this some years back. Pictures of all their waitstaff. And if you look at the picture and everyone's male, most of us today would say, I don't know why this happened, how it happened, but we really should think about this because even if it's not intentional, this is signaling this institution is not open to women or African Americans. So, so it's a very long answer. So, so set the stage. Let's so start someplace different. And what you're saying is that there's a kind of fragile sense that if the picture of the, the wait staff or of the faculty or of the students in an institution, especially if it were a public institution, that is a fragile consensus. There's something a little off here because it doesn't represent America. And it seems to be then maybe there was a mechanism to exclude some people. But it's not even clear that people feel all the way that direction. They're just saying there's something a little bit off. So That's right. So, and what you're saying is to start with affirmative action kind of skews the debate already to take a side for or against it or to define it. And I want to ask you something as a professor of law. Is there a law in the land that says affirmative action is mandated? Does the government say anywhere? Is there such a thing? Is it even a legal concept in that sense, a statute or a law in existence? In federal government contracting, which is a very specific area, there are rules. Those rules have the most fascinating origin. You usually think of affirmative action as progressive or liberal. It's not. President Richard Nixon was the first to adopt at the federal level on a wide scale this type of program. Why did he do that? Two reasons. One, the alternative was much more direct aid. You know, that's what the Black Panthers wanted. 
give us money and resources, and we will distribute it to the community, to the people. The other reason, though, is President Nixon made a political calculation. This is well attested to. He thought that affirmative action would divide and conquer. It would put African Americans and labor unions on the opposite side, two traditional Democratic constituencies. So when you look at the history of affirmative action, you realize it's not quite what you think it is. And as people have pointed out, we've long had affirmative action for whites. We just didn't call it that. Um, so what I'm trying to do is start a dialogue, but start in a different place, which is, look, we've got racial discrimination, we have racial disparities, it's ongoing, you can document it, there are proven cases. These days, since everyone has a smartphone, if you go on YouTube, you can find videos of people just delivering openly white supremacist rants, there are rallies, there is violence, there are people who are attacked and killed by people who avowedly, openly say they are neo-Nazis who are followers of Hitler or whatever else you choose. But there's also so much evidence now, we've come to understand, there's implicit bias, what's unconscious. I am guilty of it. It's rattling around in the back of my head. There are images that I'm just dimly aware of that if they were articulated, would embarrass me. They're contrary to my ideals. Some of these images probably are stereotypical even of communities that I belong to. That's one of the most troubling aspects of this. You know, some of this research shows that when you test African Americans, they also have in the recesses of their minds, just because it's all around us in the culture, some of these images of black criminality and violence and so on. So that, that's what I propose. Let's say we live in this world that has a gap between the reality we inhabit and the ideals we espouse. How much do we care about this? And do we actually want to do something? And I'm not talking about proportional representation or anything like that. I'm just asking. It's, it's a real question, not rhetorical, because it may be, it may be some people say, I don't really care. Maybe some people say, I was just giving a speech about diversity because it's expected and it's polite, but at the end of the day, if we have no African Americans or no women, yeah, that's okay. Well, I actually want to find out if that's so. And then among the people who say, no, no, I really believe, I, I am, as a CEO or university president, I want to make a commitment to inclusion of critical mass, to, to have people really feel welcome. Then we can move to the next step, which is, okay, if that is our goal, what is an appropriate, equitable, legal, ethical means to achieve the goal that doesn't then disadvantage in some grossly unfair manner some other individual or community? Can we talk about the goal that you said you, you want to sort of find out whether people are serious about the goal? What could be the reasons for this goal, to have a more diverse workforce or student body or faculty. There are several reasons. So how do people conceptualize it? So in some ways, you're asking two things. You're asking, are you truly emotionally connected to this? Is this sort of on a gut level? You believe this is the right thing? But then people quickly think, well, I don't really know. Let me think about why this would be a good thing. 
So what would right. be the reasons to actually support this? Uh, I'll offer you a range. You're very erudite. You're a professor. So I'll give you sort of a deontological worldview, a utilitarian worldview, and then a much more uh, strictly legal view. Right? So the deontological view, that is about responsibilities and duties, would be it's the right thing to do. A society has an obligation to ensure that the different parts of the society, the constituent parts, the different communities, are able to meaningfully engage, especially if it's a democracy, right? Now, and not just a democracy, a diverse democracy. Both aspects of that are important. If it's not a democracy, well, we don't have any baseline expectation right. that anyone has any ability uh, to uh, engage. But if it's a democracy, we, we have uh, inherent in that the, the notion that you participate, I participate, that civic engagement is expected. It's not just a right, it's a responsibility to, to take part. So that's why, for example, a jury should be diverse. It's not just my right to be on a jury, it's my responsibility to be on a jury. So my next question is going to be, right, the utilitarian. Because right. the outcome of this, let's say, this thinking is say, deontological or philosophical. So society should include all of its members if it wants to be a function. That only appeals to a few people. Only a few people are moved by that. I, I'm, yeah. Ultimately, I'm a realist about this. Right. So there's actually a utilitarian argument and I'll put it in the most brute way, which is society will cease to function if significant segments are alienated. I'll give you a couple of examples. So University of California. University of California, there's an interesting correlation. It doesn't prove causation, but the University of California, since it had a master plan three generations ago with the express ideal that higher education would be free or almost virtually free for citizens of the state. The enrollment at the campuses has become much, much, much more diverse, much, much, much less white. And at the same time, public funding has dropped to a fraction. Now, both those statements are factually true. I don't have proof that one is directly a cause of another, but I will hazard a hypothesis that I, I think is commonsensical, not that controversial. Communities that are not included in institutions don't want to support those institutions, right? So in order, if we're going to have public institutions, then the public, so this is the utilitarian, never mind who you vote for or what your view is, I need to include you because if I don't include you, you're going to oppose what I have going on and we will then have social unrest. In the 1980s, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called Plyler versus Doe. It's about the rights of undocumented children to attend public schools. And in the arguments that were made to the court, and in its opinion, you can see that part of what people are thinking is, we will be worse off as a society if you have a large mass of children than adolescents not required to go to school, not allowed to go to school, running around. Now, 
there's a sort of ugly piece to that. It's sort of saying, look, if you don't educate people, they're likely to be criminal or to, you know, be unproductive. But that's the utilitarian argument, right? That, that's, that goes back to Jacob Rees when he writes How the Other Half Lives. It's not all magnanimous, morally good. He says, if we don't take care of the poor, it'll become a problem for the wealthy. And they or, will rob you. It, they will rob you. They will bring, they will breed criminality. Yeah. Disease was a real problem then because yeah. they were living in unsanitary conditions and that would be contagious across class lines. So this argument is then 150 years later so it, saying it's not wise not to educate the young of it, undocumented That's people. right. It's in people's self-interest, even if they don't belong to a disfavored class, to not heap scorn on that disfavored class. So what you're identifying is not kind of solidarity across class or race lines out of some moral good, but saying this is actually good for me. It's a real, it's, it's a real politique pragmatist argument. Now, I'm just offering to right, these arguments. Right. I'm not We're looking saying, at the reasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to give you a, a kind of brute argument about this. Now, then, here's what the court had to say. So, Justice O'Connor, the first woman to be on the U.S. Supreme Court, makes an argument that combines these. She says, I'm paraphrasing here, she says, in a democracy, the path of leadership must be visibly open to all. It's very interesting. She doesn't just say it has to be open to all. She says visibly open. That is, you and I have to have confidence that we actually have an opportunity, not a guarantee, but that, that we have a shot at this. And what the court did there is the Supreme Court has never said you must adopt an affirmative action plan. They've said you're permitted to do so because diversity is a compelling state interest. And in those Michigan cases, the utilitarian aspect is sociologists, psychologists, all these researchers, they actually, rather than having abstract writing, they went and looked at the concrete reality of classrooms. What happens in a classroom if you have people of different backgrounds versus what happens in the classroom if you don't have people of different backgrounds? What do they self-report? What do the instructors see? What do observers note about interactions? What are the learning outcomes that we can measure? And there is good, credible data now for this utilitarian view. Some people call it the business case for diversity, where you can show that Organizations of people that are diverse outperform organizations of people that are homogenous. So it doesn't matter whether you're idealistic, whether you like it, if you are just bottom line oriented. Mm -hmm. The most important briefs filed with the Supreme Court in these affirmative action cases come from two sources, not from the parties, not from universities, not from the government. The important briefs were amicus briefs filed by corporate leaders who said we need an educated and diverse workforce, and by retired military who said that you can't have an effective fighting force for the United States without it being inclusive. Mm -hmm. Those were very powerful arguments, and those fall right into this utilitarian category. They just said, here's what the data shows. And they pointed out, if you don't permit affirmative action, 
you don't magically get diversity. See, we, we have this and hope. It's quite important what you're pointing out to saying it's actually when you're identifying the people who write amicus briefs or the people who are interested in this, the utilitarian argument suggests that it's not a partisan issue, that it's not a leftist progressive issue, that's only a civil rights unity agenda, but it's actually in the interest of people who just want to run good businesses. So that suggests that the utilitarian argument cuts across or eliminates this kind of moral grandstanding that to be for affirmative action or to be for diversity puts you on one side of the political spectrum alone. Seems that's right. That's right. And it's meant to appeal to people's self-interest. That's one of the best ways to appeal to people, right? To say, look, you don't have to agree with me. You yourself will benefit. Now, what's interesting is we all act contrary to our own self-interest all the time, right? When I eat a bacon cheeseburger at lunch, I'm acting knowledgeably to my own detriment, and six hours later, when I have indigestion, I will regret the act that I myself inflicted upon my future self. But, you know, I eat bacon cheeseburgers. Why? Because I can't, as Oscar Wilde said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it, right? So you're saying that the self-interest is not a self-evident that everybody knows right away what's good for them. And before we get to then people saying, no, actually it will hurt me or my kids or somebody else, the legal case, you said it's a deontological case, a utilitarian case. So how does the law and how do the courts, and it's not only the Supreme Courts, many of these cases don't make it to the Supreme Court, how does the law think of this? Is diversity a compelling interest for institutions that the law can help institutions to achieve that? So the Supreme Court has done something, which is divide the analysis into two parts. Whenever the government, and they've extended this to private colleges in the higher education context, so it's the same. Whenever the government uses race and, to an extent, gender, what they call suspect classifications, that's just a technical term they made up, suspect classifications, Meaning we have a long, unhappy history of seeing that classifying and attempting to dispense the goods in society on this basis it leads to really, let me put it mildly, suboptimal outcomes. Okay? I was going to say terrible outcomes, right. but suboptimal is a good <laughs> yeah. way of putting it for the people affected right. and society at large. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So what the Supreme Court has done is they've divided this into two pieces. First, they've said we have to look at is there a compelling state interest. That's the ends. This is called ends means analysis, the goal. Is there some reason you are doing this? So sometimes it's national security is invoked for racial profiling. So is there a compelling state interest? Then, second, they talk about the means. Is it narrowly tailored? So it is, is sometimes you see a phrase, least restrictive alternative. Right, what in the world does that mean? That means, has the program been crafted in a way that it impinges minimally upon people who aren't beneficiaries? So it's not a broad brush stereotype. So what the court has done is it said diversity in higher education is a compelling state interest, meaning you can pursue it. So then there's a fight about the means, how. Now here's what's interesting. 
you can fight over both these, right? So if this Harvard case, the new case, goes up to the Supreme Court, they could revisit the end piece of this and say, now, racial diversity we don't think is a compelling state interest. It's not a legitimate goal, in which case we're, we're, we're done. Tell me in a sentence or two, the Harvard case is really more about the means and what is the Harvard case about really? That's right. So, so an example, and I actually think it illustrates things more than it clarifies things about what happens at Harvard in that's the, right. the dark basement of the undergraduate admissions office overseen by Dean Fitzsimmons. It's not that. It's what's it? So it's you're saying it concerns the means aspect of how to get that's there. That's right. So the second piece to this, the means, okay, even if diversity is a compelling state interest, okay, the court could decide. You can pursue it, but only using race-neutral means. In other words, you can pursue racial diversity. You just can't consider race as part of that. Right? Right, that that, is, a, that pe- is a great pe- thing for a non-lawyer to think, think yeah, about. To I, say, I, I don't understand. How right? do you want to get somewhere if you're not allowed to use the, the way to get the, there? The leading alternative that's offered is class-based programs. So uh, I'll use another technical term that's used here, a proxy so instead of using race, you use another measurement that will correlate to race or produce disparate impacts that you want to see. And the thinking is African Americans are disproportionately poor. Class-based affirmative action would disproportionately benefit them. There, Let's the, get to something because so some people would think that is more palatable because class is a thing People are maybe born into certain circumstances, they can remedy that. Race we shouldn't touch because it is, first of all, just so difficult, so charged. And as you said, it has also led to terrible outcomes. So in some ways to take race off the table, put class in there. And class we feel a bit more comfortable maybe because it's fungible, because people can move out of their class? or And so schools do do this. They look at first to go to college. That's now become a very popular group for everyone to support, and we should. We, we do want to help the people who, their parents don't, didn't attend college, their cousins attended college, and so on. They're, they're coming from a background, they have the skills, but they just come from a community where the whole family, the whole extended family, hasn't had this opportunity. So uh, class-based alternatives, they're very appealing. And I'm not opposed to them. It may very well be NYU or Harvard University of California, should address issues of class. But they're not mutually exclusive. Issues of class and issues of race, they're related, but addressing issues of class produces only an incidental benefit as to issues of race. The the famous sociologist William Julius Wilson reviewed a book that came out in 1995 called The Remedy. This book is the most thoughtful extended argument for class based affirmative action. It's a good book. But William Julius Wilson pointed out, I'm just borrowing from him, I I want to credit him, pointed out two two very serious problems with this. First is, it doesn't matter what formula you come up with to define poor or impoverished or low socioeconomic status, however fancy you want to do it, your program will be mostly whites. Now, that's not a bad outcome. Helping poor whites is laudable. But what people, because we're all just not good with 
logic and numbers. It is true African Americans are disproportionately poor, but the absolute numbers of poor people are predominantly white. So as soon as you have a class-based program, you're mainly, not exclusively, you're mainly talking about poor whites. Now, that's a good outcome to ensure that people who are impoverished but have the skills can come to NYU, right? But that, that doesn't help for the most part Africans. But the second problem Wilson pointed out, and that this is tragic, and he had a preface, and I'm going to adopt his preface, in saying this, he didn't mean to stereotype, and I don't mean to stereotype, but, but here's what happens when you have class-based programs. You tend to benefit or offer the benefit to people who have such poor educational backgrounds that you can statistically predict overwhelmingly they're not going to succeed in an elite higher education setting. Simultaneously, ironically, you will exclude the people best situated to be able to succeed who are poor, not poor enough. Because no matter how you try to configure this, there's a sociological reality to this. And this is true, actually, of almost all government programs. We just we never like to talk about this, which is whoever is a beneficiary tends to be somebody who is in the appropriate class, but is among the most relatively well-off of your class. Let me give you a different concrete example. Well, let's say you have a program that's about health, and you want to help sick people, whatever the particular ailment is. The people you probably, not exclusively, but probably, are going to capture through your program, they will be sick, but they're going to be the healthiest of the sick population. Now, why is that? Well, when you think about it, it makes sense. Because the sickest of the sick are so sick they're unable to access right. Your benefit, they, they're socially cut off, they're physically weak, they're ignorant of the program. So the people you're helping, they are legitimately ill, but they're just, they're at the top of the ill category, just below the healthy category. So it doesn't reach the whole group it's intended to reach. But that's just intrinsic and to benefit programs of this nature. Class-based admissions criteria already exist everywhere, and as you said, the group of first-generation students, as they're called, is a very a group that a lot of schools, universities care about greatly, try to recruit, try to help provide more access, reach more deeply into this group. So where's the problem in the Harvard case, do you think? And you've written quite about it. What, what is being alleged, or what is the inappropriate so, thing being used there? The Harvard case is novel, it's making news, both because it involves Harvard, but also because it involves Asian Americans. So... People sometimes ask me, well, whose side are you on, Asian Americans or Harvard? As if you must pick. We're always driven to the figurative black and white. So I make it clear, look, I am Asian American. I was once an Asian American student. I've studied this. We should look at the facts. But based on what I've seen, I am persuaded, not just Harvard, but many elite institutions of higher education it appears, have been discriminating against Asian-American applicants. But 
that doesn't mean that we should altogether dismantle every program that's about diversity. That's a jump, that's a logical jump. Because the framing is it is pitting Asian Americans as an entire group against one elite college. And you're saying there is evidence that Asian Americans have not been treated fairly and been discriminated against in admissions processes in some schools and all of higher education. So that's wrong. So you can relate to that and say that's wrong and that should be remedied. But the remedy now is a lawsuit that is also doing something else. It's just, so my uh, two questions. Is a lawsuit going to benefit Asian Americans? And is the lawsuit really about this? Because it's That's not right. called the lawsuit on behalf of Asian right. Americans. It's called That's affirmative right. action at Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Lawsuits are always about something else. <laughs> they're about what they're about, and then they're about right. something else. They're symbolic, you know. Litigation is a narrative. It's a story. It's theater. That's right. <laughs> Drama. It's theater. Very dramatic, also. So, uh, <clears throat> let me first explain what I mean by Asian Americans mm -hmm. appear to have faced discrimination. I'm not singling out Harvard. The, this issue has been around for more than 30 years. I first wrote about this issue when I was an undergraduate, and I'm 51 years old. Uh, so it's only now that and you wrote have about the fact that notes. as an Asian American, what was the experience of applying to college? So here's what the evidence suggests, and this only matters at a handful of schools. Most people also don't realize almost all colleges in America admit almost all applicants. The number of four-year institutions of higher education where for undergraduate admissions, this actually matters, is probably five dozen, six dozen. It's a small subset. So Asian Americans, if you look at the data that's publicly available, whether it's about Harvard or other institutions, typically, on average, and so we're always talking aggregates here, must score higher than whites to gain admission. Let me say that again so it's clear. Asian Americans must meet a higher standard than whites, meaning Asian Americans face discrimination vis-a-vis -vis whites. People have said this is similar to the experience of Jews in the Ivy League in the 1950s, immediate post-World War II. And now it's well attested to that all these institutions, they admitted Jewish students. They just didn't admit them in the numbers they would have been admitted in had they not been anti-Semitic and held it against them, and many of the schools just openly said, we don't want to be too Jewish. You know, some Jews, okay, but not too many. Here's what's interesting about this parallel. I think it's a very good parallel. If you went back to 1950 and looked at an Ivy League institution, you said, what is causing discrimination against Jewish students? No rational person would say, oh, these schools are trying to admit more African-Americans, so they're squeezing out Jewish students. You would say that's... That wasn't a fact. That, yeah, that, <laughs> that's right. was simply not a fact. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not a fact. That's counterfactual. They, in other words, it's false. You would say what's happening is Jewish students are facing discrimination. It's not reverse discrimination to favor African-Americans. It's just, just discrimination. That's what Asian-Americans are facing. They're just facing discrimination. They're facing just straight-up discrimination to favor white students. Now, you can get way into the details of this. I'll give you an example. One of the big issues that's come out 
is legacies, alumni preferences. Most, not all, most private institutions of higher education, some publics, have VIP admissions, donors or whoever, but legacies refers to people whose parents, usually father, but now that's changed over time as women have been admitted, or grandfather, or sometimes older sibling attended a school. Legacy preferences are legal, they're widespread, they are substantial. The people admitted through legacy programs are, on average, not as well qualified. Okay. And, and the admit so let me ask you the obvious question. Yeah. Why isn't there a lawsuit against legacy admissions in the Ivy League or against other types of favored standards for certain groups? Why is this Because lawsuit? legacy status doesn't use a suspect classification such as race. And so if a school wants to do that, that would be, schools can decide we will favor tennis players. We want to be the number one school in tennis. And theoretically, you or I, at the age of 12, could decide, I'm going to take up tennis, and I'm going to gain admission to this school. And it's, it's fair. You could do it. I could do it. We could all do it, or we could decide not to. Legacies, you can't travel back in time and change, but over time, people of all backgrounds conceivably, no pun intended, could belong to this class. And indeed, Asian Americans now are in the group where they will have a parent who went to one of these institutions. So the, the funny aspect of this is legacy preferences might be abolished just as people of color, African Americans as well, can benefit from them. Now, so the case centers on race as a category that is being used. That's right. And the idea is that Asian American identities used to discriminate against those applicants. But here's the fascinating aspect of this case. So if you read about the case, heard about this case, it would be portrayed as Asian Americans face discrimination at Harvard. Okay, and you might say, oh, that's very interesting. Let's see what the evidence shows. Now, what's interesting is, of course, Asian Americans are extraordinarily overrepresented. It's also an issue of do you disaggregate, because Asian Americans includes people from dozens of different national origins. And by the way, we're only talking about US citizens here, so they're, they're all Americans. And the last aspect before I tell you that the secret that's hidden in the open, that's the most crazy aspect of a crazy case. The other aspect of this that's important to bear in mind is Harvard could, and many other elite schools could do this, they could kick out every single student they admitted and go back to their applicant pool and readmit another class. Nobody would know the difference except the ones kicked out. What I mean by that is they would maintain the same statistics. They could do that maybe two or three times over. Why? Because the applicant pool is so big, because these seats are so coveted, um, and their admit rate is so low. We are not talking about the difference between qualified person and unqualified. We're just talking about selection from among qualified people, from extraordinarily qualified people. People sometimes say, well, I know so-and-so, everyone has an anecdote. I know so-and-so whose child had perfect SAT score and didn't get into whatever school. I don't want to be harsh, but lots and lots and lots of kids have perfect SAT scores. The proportion is small, but the absolute numbers are such that actually having a perfect SAT score at one of these institutions, yeah, not that impressive. You know, 
the next guy or next gal also has a perfect SAT and score. We'll have another conversation about that, the SAT score. But, but here, itself is not a predictor necessarily. Oh, that's right. That's, make that's that's but you wanted to go back to the, the kind of hidden secret here. <laughs> Here's the, the amazing thing about the Harvard case. The way, so I'll tell you something technical. When you file a lawsuit, you file a document called a complaint. The complaint has some technical aspects about jurisdiction, then it has a bunch of factual allegations, then it has causes of action, those are the types of legal claims. And at the very end, it has a prayer for relief. The prayer for relief, it's usually, it's only a page, so your complaint might be 100 pages, your prayer is usually only a page. You might ask for money. Uh, in this case, you might ask for admission to the institution Okay. You might ask for an apology. There's different things you can ask for. Here's what's fascinating about the Harvard case. If you go and look at the front of the complaint, page after page after page after page, what does it talk about? It says, Harvard discriminates against Asian Americans. You get to the prayer. The prayer doesn't mention Asian Americans. You can look this up. This, these documents are publicly available. The prayer doesn't even say Asian Americans. So front of the complaint says, discrimination, discrimination, discrimination. The back of the complaint says, therefore, Abolish affirmative action for African Americans and Hispanics and others. That's a non sequitur, right? If the trial and its conclusion, if the judge says, you know, there's really evidence here that Asian Americans face higher standards than whites. Now, maybe there's not evidence. If there's not evidence of that, Harvard should win. But if there is evidence of that, you might think that the remedy would be stop discriminating against Asian Americans, right? That would be an appropriate remedy. But what the plaintiffs do is they jump to abolish affirmative action altogether. So this case is being quite transparently used to advance a policy goal that is not about Asian Americans. But that's quite interesting because the other cases sort of Fisher versus University of Texas was about an individual white student who claimed she didn't get admission while other students equally qualified different races got. Same thing back in California, same thing someone didn't go to UC Davis Medical School, Greta versus Bollinger in Michigan Law School. These are individual students who said, I didn't get in, and my redress should be I should have been admitted or I should be admitted, assuming and in the future this should never happen again. But you're saying in this case, it is not to say these five, 10, 100 students should now be retroactively admitted to Harvard University, and everything is fine. They were discriminated against, inappropriate, wrong, immoral, illegal, all these things. But you're saying it's aiming at something else. There were vociferous objections. The person who's fighting the lawsuit said, oh, no, 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 this is not about affirmative action at all. And in some ways, you are now in this back in the frame you didn't want to have in the beginning, yeah. rightly. Say, so what is it about then? Here's why. You know, initially, the plaintiffs characterized it as being about affirmative action. They then realized, and I credit them, these plaintiffs lawyers are very good, right? Very good, they're, meaning very, very lawyer effective. effective. <laughs> very good effective. lawyers. That's right. <laughs> you know, this is like thinking, should I have a deontological argument or a utilitarian argument? They've tried different messaging, and they've realized the messaging works better when you substitute Asian Americans for whites as plaintiffs. Because suddenly, people don't know what to make of this, right? Because now, it's not the same legally, technically, in the abstract, it's all the same. 
but viscerally, symbolically, it's not the same because now you have racial minorities, people of color on the plaintiff's side. So it, now it looks like minority against minority, right? So it just it has a different feel to it, regardless of which side you pick. So that's a brilliant move. The other brilliant move is after sort of testing out this message, they realized setting it up as Asian Americans against affirmative action created unwanted backlash. Better to try to separate that. And the plaintiff's lawyers are right. These are separate, except what the plaintiff's lawyers have done is in their complaint. So it's they want it separate when it suits them. And then at the end, they want to come back and say, therefore, get rid of affirmative action. So at the end, they're going to bring it back to that. And this is openly known. If you look at the folks who are part of this movement, they're the same people who litigated against the Voting Rights Act. This is part of an effort. Nothing wrong with that. You know, the NAACP, when it attacked Brown versus Board of Education, spent decades litigating cases to get to Brown. This is the mirror image. It's the opposite of that. This case, Bakke, University of Michigan, Fisher, Harvard, these are not unrelated, isolated cases. Right. The folks who bring these cases, the lawyers, the organizations, they are sometimes the same, and in other cases, they're funded by so the same So there's a kind of history, so and they're aware of it, you're aware of it. You said you testified in the Bollinger case, so Justice Day O'Connor then said, and I'll read this one sentence, which you know very well, predicting what the future may spell out, and we are now living in this future already. So she wrote in the ruling in Greta versus Bollinger in 2003. 25 we, years. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest, which is the student body diversity in the context of higher education, that we approve today, end quote. So she said, in 25 years, the country may be different, and we don't need this anymore, but for the moment, we accept race as one of several categories. So they're just a little bit ahead of it, and they're saying, we just get rid of this whole thing right now. I want to ask you, What's an Asian American parent supposed to feel about this case? I'm thinking, this is not okay. Yeah, this is, yeah. uh, my kid is being discriminated yeah. against. I'm this, being pitted in this right. battle. Yeah, here. Yeah. This is really hard. This case has divided Asian Americans. When you look, you'll see that there are Asian American civil rights groups that are more traditional groups that have lined up on one side, and newly formed Asian American groups that have lined up on the other side. This divides communities, and it's very interesting. It divides among Asian ethnicities. So primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on the plaintiff's side are Chinese Americans, but not, for example, Filipinos, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Malaysians, other Southeast Asian refugees, all of whom likely benefit from consideration of diversity. And it's interesting, it appears there's a generational divide here, both in the sense of immigration generation. So many of the folks who have attracted publicity are more recent Chinese immigrants. They're now U.S. citizens, but they arrived 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And generational in the sense of parents and children. So you have a phenomenon, this is not new to Chinese immigrants and their American-born children. You could go back 100 years and you could find Jewish immigrants lamenting the assimilation of their children and grandchildren. But what you sometimes, what I see in the classroom, among my students, so I teach about Asian Americans, 
And some of my students, who are Asian American, say to me, I don't know how to talk to my parents, who are Asian immigrants. And so this is a recurring theme. They, they come in and they say sometimes, my parents are racist. So more than one of my students will say, you know, at the dinner table, my parents just say these things about blacks and Hispanics being stupid and lazy, and if they were smarter and worked harder, they'd be able to do well, just like Asians. So there is some of that, but I want to be clear. I am not for a moment suggesting that all Asian immigrants have those views. I don't want anyone to misunderstand. Uh, but there is a piece of this, just as among whites and among any other community. Then there's another piece of this, which is many Asian Americans don't know Asian American history, and that's okay. Nobody really knows Asian American history, and broader civil rights history. So let me put it very sympathetically to the Chinese immigrant. Okay? Now, let me also be clear. I'm a beneficiary of the civil rights movement. I've supported the civil rights movement. I think without the historic and unique struggle for black equality, Asian Americans wouldn't be welcomed the way that we're welcomed. So I happen to think, whether others agree or not, I, someone who's not African American, owe a debt to African American advocates of multiple generations. Okay, but let, let me be sympathetic to people who are more newly arrived from Asia. If you just landed here from Mars and looked around and just looked at who does what in society, okay, and more likely you'd be looking at a screen and watching a TV show or a movie, so your depiction's not likely to be entirely who do I see as I walk down the street? It's more likely to be, who do I see when I watch eight hours of TV a day walking down the street? Who is the police officer? Who is the criminal? Who is the miscreant and wrongdoer and violent offender? And who's the hero who saves the day? And so on and so forth. You would come to some conclusions stripped of context and causation with a germ of truth that's been exaggerated and distorted from the media depiction, and even if you were looking at who you saw walking down the street, that's framed by a set of experiences and things going on in your head, and you would come to all sorts of conclusions at odds with American ideals. What do you tell your students they should say to their parents, who may have just absorbed a lot of American-produced entertainment and say, this is what I think how the That's society right. functions. What should they say? They don't watch so much mm. TV or actually deconstruct <laughs> right, these ideas yeah. or, or pay uh, attention how you are depicted also? You mean you've written about right. this as well? Yeah. You end up in a category that is not really helpful either? That's right. It's an ongoing dialogue. I don't have an answer. There is not an answer. And I know this sounds like what a professor would say, but, but I, I believe this. this. is why I'm a professor. There is not one single, simple, magic bullet. Make this argument, you'll persuade people to stop being racist. Well, you know, it, the world just it doesn't work that way, in, in my experience. But it does help to point out, you know, Asians face all sorts of stereotypes, including stereotypes of criminality, 
gang activity, being unclean. You know, these images have changed over time, so people forget when Chinatown in New York City or San Francisco it was depicted as dens of inequity with opium smoking and prostitution but and I, disease. I, if you set foot there... I brought up Jacob Rees earlier, The Other Half Lives. What he has to say about Chinatown is actually... It's the one category unkind. of people who he also thinks cannot be assimilated or reformed. He actually thinks right. Chinese immigrants, he said, we just can't really deal with that group at all. They're just not going to be become part of America, which is a really horrifying thing to say. This is also yeah. the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act, so there's anti-Asian sentiment rampant. To go back to the Harvard case now, so you can't predict the future, unlike Justice Day O'Connor, who hoped to predict a better future. So the court, you know, they're going to issue their ruling, presumably early 2019, regardless of whether, well, let's say it goes to a higher court, the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of speculation with, with the new Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, how it is going to decide, but what do you think it will do to the understanding of this concept of affirmative action in, in relation to higher education? The trial court cannot overrule the Supreme Court. So the trial court will make fact findings, and the judge has already signaled that what the trial court is likely to do is say, here are the facts, and based on the current doctrine, here's the outcome. It's only if it... And the current the doctrine would be presumably the history of Grutter, Fisher, Backey, sort of these cases would achieve the judge, in this case, the trial court would understand the Supreme Court rulings to give guidance on how to decide the facts. But here are the two practical consequences. One good, one bad. Here's the good consequence. Asian Americans are now part of the picture. Now, Asian Americans have been part of the picture for a long time. When I was an undergraduate, I wanted to write a paper about Asian Americans and civil rights. I went to the library to in the card catalog room, if you remember that. Some of your listeners don't remember. Type be a giant card. room with three by five cards and these funny cabinets with three foot long drawers you pull out every card. Someone had manually indexed right. all the cards. That's how you could tell I'm not young. I sometimes make a joke, but I'm Asian, so you so can't, you you can't really today. tell. Asian yeah. Americans yeah. and but, civil but, rights. So back then, in the 1980s, there were no books. The book did not exist. Okay, So now, whether you're liberal, conservative, on Harvard side, against Harvard side, everyone realizes the world is not literally black and white. It never was, but people have awakened to that. If you ask me, that's a good outcome. Asian Americans are having this moment. Crazy Rich Asians, the number one movie. You know, so, Hassan Minhaj on Netflix, a series. Yeah, 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 like suddenly, it's as if it had never been this case. That's okay. right. There's that's been right. many depictions right. before that. That's okay. right. And, and yeah, and <laughs> I had a podcast on woman, the woman warrior last week. It was oh, a book did? from 1975. That's right. That's right. So that book, I think, shifted, at least it shifted my mind. Yes. Shifted a lot of people's minds. And then the other thing I wanted to point out, you were a college student in the late 1980s. I was actually at the University of California as a freshman. There was a lot of talk that there was no more white majority on that campus that year. Right. And there was the end of civilization, and then somehow things we moved on. So in some ways, there have been discussions, yeah. but not the focused discussion that you're saying right now about uh, Asian Americans and civil rights. Not in the mainstream. So Asian Americans were aware there were Asian Americans. Smart college students, such as you, were aware there were Asian Americans, but it just sort of in public consciousness, it was still Oriental was the term that was in use. It was still go back to where you came from. There's still some of that, but now Asian Americans have become established, and people understand. You know, 
they're sixth generation Asian Americans. They're people who can trace their roots in California to before it became a state. There are even Asian Americans whose ancestors came on the Mayflower. Now, when I say that, people say, okay, now you've gone too far. Because of mixed marriage. Mixed marriage is so high, there are Anglo-Asians who could belong to the Daughters of the American Revolution, though their name is Chang, right? Because they're 50% or whatever percent Asian and whatever percent Anglo. But here's the bad consequence of the Harvard case. Remember, affirmative action in this context is voluntary. So, if you're an institution, if you're a college president, or if you're the board of trustees, you don't have to do it. So if you look at this and you think, hmm, do I want to face the lawsuit, the publicity, and everything else, when nobody is making me try to reach out to historically underrepresented groups, you might think, let's not do it. Or you might think, Let's not do so much of it, you know, because there are gradations here, right? You might be deterred. You talk quite a bit about First Amendment free speech. When it comes to race, there's also that chilling effect, right, where people and institutions will make decisions to avoid controversy and liability rather than do something they should do, maybe want to do, but they're too risk averse. So I can easily imagine someone looking at the Harvard case and saying, yeah, whatever the outcome, we need to abolish right now our outreach program, and our what's scholarship what's program. What's hard, that's a utilitarian argument. They will say, we can't afford this lawsuit. We can't afford this assault on our brand and our prestige or make our students and faculty and parents and donors so upset. So the utilitarian argument that diversity is good for you, you say, yeah, but the other one is so dangerous that we would be bankrupted by such a thing. Because a small college would right. not have the resources of Harvard University, and they would need other organizations to help them with legal costs and all that. So you're saying this, it's pitting people's self-interest again against something else, saying we need to preserve our own institution rather than risk it for the sake of this other principle, which then becomes a deontological principle. That's no right. longer the utilitarian interest because you could say, well, you have to risk it because your college would be worse off. Your university would not be right. as good if right. you actually stopped this. That's right. So it shifts back and forth between these utilitarian considerations, my self-interest versus is there another interest or is it just a thing of doing something good? Right. There are so many nuances to this case. I'll give you one more example of when people think of self-interest. If Harvard tomorrow said we will have no affirmative action, almost all of the unhappy applicants and almost all of the unhappy parents applicants would still be unhappy. People believe erroneously, you know, I can't tell you how many people I know who have said to me, if it weren't for the Asian disadvantage, I would be at Harvard or wherever else, to which a thoughtful response, but you know you, you don't want to provoke an angry person, a thoughtful response is, that is false. You would still not be admitted. Your grades and test scores, while pretty good, and you think they were really good, look, if you're in the top 
on the SAT, in the top 10% of your high school class, you are not competitive for Harvard without something else going on. Right. That's pretty good to be in the top 10%. That is not shabby. By definition, you're above 90%. But you just won't be competitive given what the applicant pool looks like. I think it's a hard uh, it's a hard thing to respond to. I think you're right. People are angry. They're disappointed. They feel personally judged yeah. wrongly. I think the other part, too, is what you said much earlier, that the defunding of public education that... Harvard is the shiny object. It's wonderful. It, it has a name and all that. But it's not the only school in the in the country. So in some ways, that someone could be reminded to say this is actually not the guarantee of either success, happiness, or fulfillment. That actually, I know, and I completely don't want to say anything about Harvard here, but to sort of say the question is then also framed in the wrong way. If only it wasn't for this, I would get there. That's right. Yeah, as if for Asian Americans, civil rights is all about getting do I get to Harvard? Now, there are some other background facts about Asian Americans that are worth mentioning, one of which is Asian Americans apply to and attend four-year colleges at a higher rate. Now, that's important to note because anything that's done, so let's say Harvard tomorrow said, we had a fire in one of the dormitories, we're going to admit 100 fewer students next year while we rebuild. Nothing to do with race, totally race neutral. Asian Americans would be disadvantaged by that, disproportionately. Why? There are just more Asian Americans in the applicant pool proportionally than there are of other racial and ethnic backgrounds. So a decision like that will carry this effect. Asian Americans are also already overrepresented. So some people, not racist, I, I credit them with that, some people who are white and other, of other backgrounds look at this and say, let me understand. Asian Americans, a population overrepresented at Harvard in the undergraduate you population. Overrepresented to their percentage representation in the general, general population, population. Which is the wrong baseline. That's the wrong baseline. So that's what that means, yeah, that right. word, though. So there's that's X right. number of Asian Americans yeah. in the population. There should be X number, which that's is right. not the case for whites or that, black or anybody else. Exactly, right. yeah. But I'm just noting that there yeah. are some people who are utterly unsympathetic to Asian Americans because measured against the baseline of the general population, they would say, you're overrepresented 3, 4, 5x. You know, what complaint do you have to which the Asian American response would be, if it weren't for this discrimination, we'd be overrepresented 10x. The baseline is the people who are qualified. But here's something very interesting. This also shows you know, we aspire to a sort of color blindness. That phrase, interestingly, comes from Justice Harlan in Plessy v. Ferguson in his dissent, where he says our Constitution is colorblind. It knows neither caste nor color. He then goes on to say that principle will reinforce white supremacy. All you have to do is read the passage. This is the dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Dissent, was 1892. Yeah. 1896. 96, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Harlan is not the idealist you think he is, because he says legal colorblindness will support white supremacy. That's the term he uses. But he also says, and this is edited out of almost every version of this opinion, you have to get the full version, and thanks to the internet, it's easy to do. Harlan is anti-Chinese through and through, and he says, you know, one of the reasons racial segregation in railroad compartments between white and black is wrong is because we let Chinamen ride in the white car. And that can't be right. Um, 
Don't take my word for it. Go and look it no, up. No, no, no. I imagine he's sitting here thinking, and, okay, this and, is another and, podcast. Look up the word Chinaman. But what you're pointing out is the long and arduous history of civil rights in this country and of equality legislation. It's complicated tremendously when you actually pay attention to where Asian Americans, or especially Chinese Americans, figure into it. So it's somebody it's a much different story suddenly when Harlan, you think, oh, That's dissent, right. and then you're saying, well, for the wrong reasons, we would assume today. And people don't realize this, but Asian Americans have been litigating the U.S. Supreme Court for more than 100 years. Birthright citizenship in the news right now, established by a fellow named Wong Kim Ark of Chinese descent, born in San Francisco. The very right. definition of who is an American comes from a case involving an Asian. So people don't know this history, but I was going to point out one other aspect of Asian Americans as a population. There are some studies, this area should be researched more, but some scholars have found something very interesting. Asian Americans, the students and their parents, the whole family, display incredible interest in brand prestige in higher education, much more than whites, African Americans, and others. So that for Asian American families, admission to Harvard really is, if you don't get into Harvard, you are dirt. You know, the whole family sacrificed for 20 years to come to this country, to establish, to save money, to pay for piano lessons, and, you know, it's the whole tiger mom parenting stuff. And if you are not admitted to X institution, it was all in vain. So there's an issue of Asian American student suicide. There's all this pressure, you know, Asian American students, many of them, regrettably walk around with this hanging over them. You know, I'll be honest. I do not lie awake at night thinking, oh, I didn't go to Harvard. I have degrees from Johns Hopkins, from Michigan. I was a fellow at Stanford. I have two certificates from Harvard. My life is okay. And yet, that's also hard to say to someone. If, if, if their world is constructed, people, uh, you know, right. you know, it's, it's Harvard or nothing, then... If I want to go back to your student who says to you, you know, Professor, I, I'm trying to talk to my parents, and not just to not let them be so racist, but in some ways to wake up to the reality in America. What do you recommend what people should read, look at, watch, to maybe sort of correct a bit of this distorted issue? Is there anything that you actually say to your students, this is what you should be watching on TV, or this is what you should be looking at, <laughs> just as a recommendation. It well, doesn't they, have to they, be 1896 Supreme Court decisions at dissenting. <laughs> yes, right, 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 right. And not my own book, right? Your no, book, uh, I put on the, on the website, people can find your book, of course. <laughs> you know, I'll be entirely candid with you. What I think causes people to change is they themselves have an experience. Mm -hmm. That epiphany comes from their personal experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even that isn't enough. I'll give you an example. 20-some years ago, there was a federal glass ceiling commission. Glass ceiling is a term we know now, but 25 years ago, that was still a new concept. So 20 years ago, there was a glass ceiling commission, and they looked at this, whether in the corporate sector, women and minorities were being promoted to the, the highest levels of management. They found the most interesting thing which is, there, there was a glass ceiling, but they found something else very interesting about Asian Americans. 
there was a glass ceiling as to Asian Americans. There are actually studies now that show Asian Americans, in some contexts, fare the worst among groups, worse than African Americans and Hispanics, even in places such as Silicon Valley and high tech where you would think they would do well. Right? But here's what's interesting about the Glass Ceiling Commission report. The Asian Americans they interviewed all reported not having experienced discrimination, despite the study showing that in the aggregate they had. Now, why might that be? Well, you know, my parents don't speak the language of civil rights. They literally speak another language, spoke another language. They believe in the American dream, as do I. But sometimes you don't see, you want to deny that there's discrimination. No one wants to say that they're a victim. You know, it wasn't until I was well into adulthood I realized something about my parents. I always sort of blamed them when I was a kid for teasing, taunting, common child cruelty being bullied. I thought, well, I face this because I'm of Chinese background, Asian, and I'm of Chinese Asian background because my parents are, so it's their fault. Instead of seeing that it was the kids who tormented me, it's their fault. Because my parents had accents. They ate funny foods. My dad was always trying to get me to eat chicken feet. We watched TV. They didn't laugh at quite the right time. So sometimes they, they didn't get the joke, right? If there was a dispute with the phone company, they needed my help as a kid to be an interpreter or translator. So I always sort of uh, blamed them. And there was something that it wasn't until I was an adult I realized. My parents faced the adult version of teasing and taunting common childhood cruelty and bullying in the form of not being able to take out a mortgage, being mocked just at the supermarket. And they always tried to shield us, but, but here was the insight. I didn't realize they faced this. I thought it was only kids that called one another chink and jap and gook. I didn't realize, as a kid, you don't realize, oh, adults behave like kids too. You know? But here's the kicker. I didn't realize my parents blamed themselves. What I mean by that is they sort of, they never articulated this, but they sort of figured because they had accents, because they ate funny foods, they brought this on themselves. They assumed my brothers and I, having been born in America, would be accepted, be automatic. We wouldn't face any of these issues. So and you grew up in where did you grow up? In, Detroit. In Detroit. I'm from the Motor City. I'm from the heartland. You know. What are you saying is in both for your parents and you, it didn't connect to saying this is something that happens in society, but we're not to be blamed for what happens to us yeah, here, but actually to the, sort of assume this experience is real. That's right. They, they, didn't they didn't have the language of civil rights and discrimination. So if you had so said... Did it take you some realization in college or something? At yeah, some point that's you right. wake up and think, this is actually not because of my parents. This is that's right. And the other phenomenon that occurs... So there's a... We could have another podcast about the difference between being Asian-American growing up in Detroit versus being Asian-American growing up in Flushing or in San Francisco's Chinatown, you know, uh, for your listeners. What was Detroit like? Detroit's a magnificent wreck of a city. It's the motor city riven by racial conflict since the 1967 uh, riots, but along strictly black-white lines. And Detroit, because everyone made cars, that's why I grew up there. My father worked at Ford Motor Company. Because of the threat from Japanese imported cars, 
we had the face of the enemy, Japan Inc. There was a killing in 1982, Vincent Chin, a young Chinese-American, bludgeoned it out of the baseball bat by auto workers who blamed him for the success of imported cars. That's the defining moment for me from my childhood. But, and it's because there's no critical mass of Asian Americans. This ties back into higher education and affirmative action. When you're the one and only, or your family is the one and only on the whole block, right. on Sunnydale Lane there in suburban uh, Detroit. When you do experience this and you articulate it, you're told, oh, just reply, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or it just can't you take a joke, don't be so sensitive, right? So you have the sense, it's in my head, it's just me. You've you written about it's Vincent Chin and they can say gaslighting. So right. this is a moment when there's an awareness, there's something else here. For, for me, that was the moment because yeah. before that, if you said to me, you interested in race? You interested in civil rights, ethnicity? I just, what? I, I don't know what. I was a kid. I just wanted to ride my bicycle around the block and fit in and be just like everyone else. When did you but, decide to go to law school? But of course, I and couldn't be like everyone else. Did you decide else. in college to go to law school? Then? Uh, yeah. The Vincent Chin case started me as an advocate standing up and speaking out, and that led to law school. So you care deeply about the First Amendment. That phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Even as a kid, I thought there's something not quite right with that phrase in the following two ways. First is, the words lead to the sticks and stones. The words are how you incite the mob to do this. The words justify, they, they goad people into action. Right? So it's not as if you've got words on the one hand and sticks and stones on the other hand. You've got words accompanied by sticks and stones or vice versa. But the other way in which that phrase gets it wrong, and I'm a proponent of free speech. I've written about not censoring. I personally, as a little hobby, collect anti-Asian propaganda from 100 years ago so I can exercise dominion over it, so I can save it and show that this is real. But this phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, doesn't get it quite right in the sense that when I think about my childhood, Kids have high fevers, they break their bones, they fly off swing sets and knock their teeth out, they tumble downstairs, they suffer all sorts of physical harms that adults couldn't <laughs> make it through because kids have this resilience and jump up and, you know, and if you break a bone and you have a cast, that makes you cool, right? right. People sign the plaster right. cast that right. you're wearing, you know, it's a, you're a tough guy, you, you know, you broke a bone. And you recover. But the psychological trauma, the effect of being told constantly that you did not belong, could not belong, no matter how hard you tried, that's the irony um, the Jacob Rees comments, and he was not alone in those common sentiment, the Asians cannot assimilate. It's not they will not, cannot. What's interesting is there are have been many Asians who have converted to Christianity, not taught their children the language of their grandparents, tried to buy the right brand of sneakers and jeans and to mimic, to copy, to try to be just like their social superiors. 
but it doesn't work, right? And it leaves this constant sense of, well, you're just trying too hard. You know, you're a social climber. When I was a kid, I could tell that there was something odd about my family. My friends' parents would never be my parents' friends. I was making friends at school, right. but there was always a social separation. Right. And it's not that my parents didn't try. They tried. They went to the neighborhood picnic. They did the potluck. They were just always awkward, but they thought it was their own awkwardness. And I like the fact that you've become a really prolific writer and teacher, and in some ways you're now saying this is important enough to talk about. So maybe other kids won't go through a similar experience of being so subjected to an experience that they don't understand is connected to larger forces. I think it maybe can wait earlier than college and say, this is actually not my parents' fault or my fault. It's not anybody's fault, but there's a way to understand it, which maybe is one way to not be resilient, but so if you understand it, at least that's one step out of it. That you're not only, that you, thank you. The way you put it was much more eloquent than I Well, I think that's part of your work to sort of say like, look at these things in context. You know, it's not all black and white, not as simple. But that is a way out of it, maybe. Not just through to deepen it. to dialogue. Exactly. To, this, to step out. Through sharing these stories right. and exercising control to write the script of our own lives. When I talk to my students, when I give speeches and I talk to young people, I always point out, you know, it's nice that you came to listen to me. Thank you for applauding. I, I'm flattered. But what I'm really here to do is to open up a conversation that you will have with your peers, with your teachers, with your parents, with one another, after I leave. I'm just here to do this. I will be gone, but this community will remain. And each of you, you have your version of my story. 